It would be helpful to keep uh, your Bibles open as we look at this passage together. Let me pray before we begin. Uh, Dear Lord, we do thank you that uh, we do have the privilege of gathering together uh, to praise you and worship you and to hear from your word. And so, Lord, I pray that my words this morning will be faithful to your word, and I pray that through your spirit you will speak to each of us. Amen. We all know the expression, the grass is greener on the other side. So wherever you stand, you always feel that life would be just that little bit better if I was over there. And these days we've got a million you know, Instagram pictures to show us what over there potentially looks like. And it just sort of feeds our feelings of discontent and envy and inadequacy as we look around at the world around us. But as Christians, those feelings lose their power when we start to get comfortable in our own skin when we're confident about who we are because of the grace of God, when we're confident about God's goodness to us, and when we're confident about our future hope as we look forward to being with God forever. When we're confident of those things, the temptations of this world and that discontent all of a sudden seem just far less tempting. And so the passage we're looking at today uh, is really written in two quite distinct parts. And so the first part, John wants to say, you can be confident that you are loved by God and that you are known by God. And then the second part, he goes on to say, and if you love God, then you cannot love the world. So in our letter so far, our readers have been told if you confess your sins and if you acknowledge the atoning sacrifice of Jesus and if you respond by obeying to God's commands, then you can be confident that you have fellowship with God. But this passage is a little different and it's a little more decisive. Uh, When I was a young and I used to uh, enjoy uh, abseiling, where you essentially sort of tie yourself onto a rope and jump off a cliff. And uh, there was one particular day, I think the best one I ever did was was called a multi-pitch, where you you, you abseil down half of a cliff onto this little rock ledge, and then you have to pull your rope down and then attach it again into an anchor point and then abseil the rest of the way down. So if you can sort of imagine that situation, you at the at the top, you're looking at sort of you know a hundred odd meters of, of you know empty space, uh, between you and and safety. Uh, you can imagine as as I'm strapping in, uh, someone saying to me, you know, uh, if you attach your harness properly, and if you get the rope uh, connected to the anchor point correctly, then you will be fine. You kind of go, well, that that's that's hardly an ironclad promise as I'm about to go over the ledge. Uh, What I would like to hear is you have secured your harness correctly, uh, the rope is anchored properly, and you are safe. And that's really what John is saying to these Christians in this particular passage. So he's saying for the first time, he's making this definitive statement to his readers, you have been forgiven. You know the Father, 
and you have overcome the evil one. And it's an interesting little section because he says almost the identical thing twice, but with some quite distinct differences. And so, for example, he talks to, as he speaks to children, he says two slightly different things. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And then the second time he says, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. Now, to make things a little more intriguing, uh, he chooses to use two different words for the word children. And he also writes both sections in a slightly different tense. So the first time he writes in sort of the present, I write to you. And the second time he writes in what's called the past continuous. I wrote to you or I am writing to you. And then there's some interpretation questions. So what does it mean to be children, for example? So right through this letter so far, John often refers to his readers as children. And so at the beginning of of this chapter, he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. And so in that particular context, John's using the language sort of metaphorically. You know, it's it's a term of endearment but it's also a recognition of his authority. So he is an apostle who has been appointed by Jesus himself to declare the gospel. And he is writing to people who are younger in the faith. If he is the teacher, they are the learners. And all of that comes out in that language of children. And so often people feel, well, perhaps he's doing the same thing here. He's using that type of metaphoric language to talk about children and fathers and young people. Uh, And that's possible. Perhaps he's talking about sort of different places of maturity. But I think, at least my choice is, that he is actually pointing out particular people in their church community. He's pointing the finger in a positive way to say, as I'm speaking, I'm speaking to you. Yes, you. This includes you, that you also should be confident. And so to the children in the church, to our children, we want to say, this isn't your parents' church. This is your church. And you are as much a Christian and loved by Jesus as any of us if you have been forgiven. And so not only is that true for us as adults, it is true for our children. And so Jesus once said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. To our elders, you might have slowed down a little bit, but you know your Lord and Saviour, who was and is and is to come. And your unwavering steadfastness has stood the test of time. You know what it means to stand firm. You know what it means to fight the good fight. You have been the protectors of the gospel. You have taught my generation and the generations under me the scriptures. And you have modelled the scriptures to us in your life. And so to all of those in this room, on behalf of everyone, to those who are younger, to our elders, we say thank you for your faithfulness. 
and we are deeply in debt for what you have done for us. To our children, we want to say, you and our youth, you know, they've got this energy and enthusiasm and an exuberance for life uh, that we all envy. We could do with a little less angst. But the rest of it, uh, we go, we would love to have that energy. And he wants to remind them that they have overcome the evil one that they are strong and they can actually stand up and resist the temptations of this world. And at times that feels overwhelming. And so John wants to, to give them confidence. You are strong and you can do it. Not just to survive as a young Christian, but to actually push forward and to make a difference for the glory of God. But forgiveness isn't just for the young, for our children, and knowing God isn't just for our elders, and overcoming isn't just for our youth. It is true for each of us as we stand together in Christ. And so in the words of Isaiah, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. That's a description of us as brothers and sisters and as saints. Whatever age, whatever generation. So if that is who we are as Christians then we need to be confident about that and we need to be confident about where we stand in the context of the world around us. So John goes on to say, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. It's a pretty negative view of the world, isn't it? You know, particularly because you know, earlier Jesus had quoted something where he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So when you put those those two verses together, and both were written by John or quoted by John, it sounds like a contradiction. Which is it? Do we love the world? Do we hate the world? And of course the answer is, well, it, it depends on the context in which we're speaking. So when Jesus is talking about God's love for the world, he's talking about his love for his creation and his love for his people, despite our brokenness. He knows it all, and yet he still loves us. But what John is talking about here is a love for worldliness. So it's not loving the world despite its brokenness. It's actually loving the brokenness of the world and calling it good. Because that's what humanity does. As human beings left to our own devices... We love sin. You know, people often say, you know, get rid of religion and you'll solve all the problems of the world and humanity will be a much more loving species. But the reality, and it is true, isn't it, that over the centuries, people have done horrific things in the name of Christ. But getting rid of religion doesn't actually solve the core problem. Because the real problem is people. 
And the history of humanity has been the rise and fall of empires, hasn't it? That we have always found an excuse to exploit and oppress and conquer. And the secular promise that education and science will solve the problem of evil has so far proved to be incredibly hollow. And so John wants us to be clear. If we love God, then we cannot love the world. And that means that's going to come potentially at a very high cost. So when you look at the story of Daniel, which we read today, here is a young man who has everything to lose. Yeah, for a man who's in exile, he's landed on his feet. He's ended up in the king's court. He has every privilege in front of him and he's willing to risk it all and risk his life to be faithful to his God. There is a lot at stake. You know, some people want to say, you know, well, can't we just have the best of both worlds? Can't I just have my sin and my salvation together? It's a bit like saying, can I have my steak and my sewerage and just blend them up? It's a rather gross thought, isn't it, really? (laughs) Sorry about that. There goes morning tea. (laughs) But of course, our sin and our rejection of God is not just about whether things are better and worse in terms of our circumstances and the present. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so can we really think that we can come before God not just covered in our sin, but, you know, holding on to our sin like a a treasured possession and then demanding that, you know, Lord, can I bring it with me? You know, that's kind of the image when we say we want to love God and love the world. Because our sin doesn't really look like sewage, does it? In fact, it often looks pretty good. And it's often, particularly in the moment, quite satisfying. You know, we cling on to it as if this is the thing that is going to give us hope and happiness. And it's not like just you know, a petite wafer, just a tiny little bit. We gorge on it as if our life depends on it. And if that's what we're doing, then we are loving the world. So John says, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lusts of his eyes and the boasts of what he has and does, come not from the Father, but from the world. So when John is talking about the cravings of sinful man, he's talking about our inner desires. Earlier in the letter, John uses the language of darkness. So it's our desire for self-determination and our selfishness and our greed and our jealousy and our rage and our misplaced sexual desires. And they're kind of like a pack of wolves within us. So there are some that we try to tame and control. Uh, But there are others, actually, that, that we feed and we justify to ourselves why we need them and why they're good. And those cravings are fed and encouraged by the lusts of our eyes. The word for lust here is actually the same word as craving. And so it's not just about our sexual lust, uh, but it does include our sexual lust. So it includes uh, our lust for sex outside of marriage or lust for someone who is not our husband and wi- or wife or our lust for pornography, or for those who have a particular love for food, 
It can be an issue of gluttony. You know, we're thinking, you know, hazelnut meringue, strawberries, cream. You think, you know what, I just need that little bit more. And of course, after you've had that little bit more and a little bit more, there's almost none left. And so, well, I may as well just finish it and take it for the team. Yeah, but if it's not gluttony, and we can apply that to a whole bunch of things in life, can't we? But if it's not gluttony, uh, you know, perhaps it's our desire for more possessions and the envy that we feel towards those who have more than us. And so we think, you know, if I could just have, you know, new clothes or a new car, or even better still, a new house, then my life would just be so much better. I would be complete. And, of course, we get those things. You get the new car, and then sooner or later, and sooner, the new car smell wears off. And all of a sudden, you're looking for, well, what's the next new thing that I need that's going to satisfy that need for life? And we just go back, and we do it all again. You know, we fill in the blanks. My life would be so much better if I just had what? I reckon I could finish that blank about 100 times and then go back and fill it all again. Yeah, it becomes insatiable. Of course, sometimes it's a little more subtle than that and we take good things and then we remould them and distort them until they become an idol. I think one of the classics of our current age is the family. I love my family. But we think, you know, uh, a nice wife or husband, nice children, nice house, nice dog, labradoodle, called Trevor. <laughs> you think that's the answer. Or perhaps if it's not family or Trevor, poor Trevor, you know, we think, well, perhaps it's our hobbies uh, or the success that we can find in our work. The end of the, his last uh, idea in verse 3, boasts of what he has and does. So verse 16. The world prides itself in its achievements, doesn't it? You know, we take an enormous amount of significance in what we achieve in our work or the wealth that we gather and the affirmation we get from others as they look at our wealth or the affirmation we get from our success. We look at all of that and we think, I've made it. You know, in the words of Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. And we completely ignore the God who gave us all of those abilities to make those things happen. Yeah, you put them all together and worldliness really is an incredibly potent mix. You know, it plays to our fears and anxieties, it strokes our ego and it promises us the world. But as we know, it all passes away. So verse 17, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. John isn't saying endure this world as if it's rubbish and hope for something better next time. That's not what he's saying to the Christians. It's not like saying, you know, eat your Brussels sprouts now, but later I'll give you some of that hazelnut meringue and strawberries and cream. What he's offering the Christians here is he's saying, no, you have life now and a perfected life later. I think most of us would say, you know, I, I love life. And there are lots of things that we love about life. But at the same time, I think we would all agree that we would like life 
to be easier, that life is complicated, uh, that life is full of anxieties, that we feel uh, depression, that we feel inadequate, that we feel frustrated at our inabilities, or sometimes our ageing. Those things are the realities of our life now, aren't they? They are the realities of living in a broken world. But what John is saying here is despite all of that brokenness, despite all of the temptations as you look at the world around you and all of its promises, be confident about where you stand. Because the message we get from the world is the grass is greener on the other side And there are times when we're tempted to genuinely believe that. But if we are genuine followers of Christ, then we can be confident about where we stand. But more than that, we should love it. We get to a point where when we understand who God is and what he has done, then it doesn't matter what they say about the other side. We can stand there and say, I know who I am in Christ. I am thankful for his grace to me. And I wouldn't want to stand anywhere else. Isn't that what we want in life? To know that we are so clear about our purpose, so clear about God's goodness to us, that the temptation of the world just loses its power over us. Let's pray that's true for us. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you for your grace, even though at times we don't appreciate just how good you have been to us. But Lord, I pray that by your spirit that you will help us to see your goodness and to be so convicted of it uh, that we will love living for you and serving you and that we'll be able to turn our back on the worldliness around us and turn our back on sin and recognise it for what it is. And so, Lord, give us uh, your strength, give us your conviction uh, that we might live this week uh, clearly with our eyes fixed on you. Amen.